Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's Infectious Disease Insight of Two Specialists. We're back! I'm Jane, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? I'm happy. New Year! <laughs> in February, we're recording February. this on the first of February. Everybody, yeah, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps our Christmas we... break took a little longer yeah. than we had thought. I think we probably owe the loyal listener uh, an explanation or an apology. I don't know. Oh well, I guess I'll have to because I'm the reason, aren't I? Uh, people who know us um, will know I finished training uh, and have moved uh, on to pastures new. Perhaps greener, perhaps not. So I'm no longer in Lothian Callum. So, but we're still going to uh, pod at a distance. And I essentially spent the whole of January sorting my house out and uh, getting ready for my new job, which I'll be starting tomorrow. That's very exciting. Mm-hmm. So we now can we can call ourselves a multi-center podcast, which a multi, yeah, it's like a multi-center trial. It sounds better, doesn't it? Sounds better, doesn't it? And the other thing I was reflecting on in preparation for recording today uh was that uh we both worked in the same site and had dramatically different ways of pronouncing uh various organisms or drugs and with jay moving to new site i'm sure there's going to be uh, even greater divergence I, I don't know i think my opinion on how things need to be are pronounced is is fairly locked in but we'll see if that stands the test of time as i go to my new um place of work yeah, people. People. A lot of people suggested having guests on, so maybe we, uh, we get some, maybe Latin expert on to tell us how we should be pronouncing it. But maybe oh, what a wonderful podcast episode where we just get corrected all the time. <laughs> yes, um, I guess that's the point. In guests, isn't it? I mean, uh, um, so James, uh, in this inaugural twenty twenty two, I think about that. Uh, it still feels like twenty nineteen. Um, mm. Uh, 2022 episode where we were continuing on from where we were last year yeah so we we're we're talking about the gram positive bacilli and we've started with the with the non-branching uh, gpbs so the first episode was on bacillus the second episode is going to be on the genus carini bacterium i kind of start by saying that the uh, carini bacteria you can sort of divide them into two major groups. They are the lipophilic carinobacterium, which usually live on skin and in mucous membranes. And these are carinobacterium gicium, urea lyticum, hoffmanii, and xerosis. And then there are the non-lipophilic carinobacterium, which usually reside within the upper respiratory tract. And these are the ones that uh, cause diphtheria and diphtheria-like illnesses. So this is carinobacterium diphtheriae, Alcarans or ulcerans and pseudotuberculosis. Uh, those are the two big uh, groups. So the things that are not diphtheria, uh, I'll be honest with you, Cal, they're not usually very pathogenic, let's say. Yeah. They can cause opportunistic infections. They, in particular, they can be a problem with peritoneal dialysis patients and who can occasionally get peritonitis. And it's presumed that the uh, that's ingress from the skin into the uh, peritoneal area through a port or a catheter site. But those lipophilic ones that I mentioned, GKM, urealyticum, they usually just stay wherever they are 
and don't infect uh, patients. The patient usually has to be immunocompromised or there has to be a sterile site, Mm -hmm. uh, access to a sterile site for them to actually cause any mischief. And as you will see shortly, they're pretty easy to kill as well. I guess you can draw a comparison here with these steroids that are not very pathogenic, things like the gram-positive cocci we we talked about, the coagulase-negative staphylococci. So they Mm. often cause these... uh, Dipferoids, as we call them, they often cause, uh, and they're called dipferoids. Uh, when you have the ending oid, it's like something. Um, mm. So anaphylactoid is a bit like anaphylaxis. So dipferoids are a bit like diphtheria, microbiologically. Yeah, when they're causing these opportunistic infections, they're not very virulent. So say you get a prosthetic joint infection might be another example. And uh, the patient might not have that much pain or they might have just mild pain and not that much erythema. And the probably the problem with them clinically is that you often don't suspect infection because well we're hardwired to believe and see infection in patients as it's always having the classic you know redness mm. erythema swelling pain and um, heat uh, but when you have these non or non pathogenic or low virulence organisms you often don't get that and so people don't diagnose this and it, it can be it can be challenging. Yeah, and you have to have a high index of suspicion, don't you? Yeah, and, exactly. And these ones, GKM, Urealiskim, Hoffmanii, like I never heard of them before I started my microbiology year. And I'm, uh, I bet that most um, uh, people will be in that situation as well. You just don't hear about these, partially because if they turn up in a blood culture, they tend to get, a, you know, presumed to be skin contamination and they don't really get identified beyond um, the. Uh, genus, if if it even gets that far, and they'll they'll be reported out as as diphtheroids of uncertain significance or Carinobacterium of uncertain significance. You'll only really encounter them if you have a patient who's got you know an opportunistic infection. So that that really confines your experience to you know certain areas of the hospital. Like if you if you're working on an oncology ward, say, and one of your patients just happens to get an infection with that organism. Yeah. If that doesn't happen, you, you'll never really get into, you, you don't really need to know about these, these bugs. The only reason you need to know about them, particularly if you're a microbiologist or you're working in pediatrics, is you need to differentiate them from diphtheria fast because diphtheria is the big hitter in this group. And most of the GPBs have this. So bacillus had bacillus anthracis, Carinobacterium has Carinobacterium diphtheria. It's got one species which is really important and causes a significant human disease, a bit like staph and coagneg staph, like you were saying. And then they've got a lot of other bugs which mostly don't cause bother, except you need to differentiate them from the big hitter. Why don't you tell us about diphtheria, Callum? So diphtheria, yeah, it's something that we fortunately rarely, very rarely see in the UK. But it is an organism. It's a disease. It's a name that uh, is in the in the general knowledge of most of the population because of its historical context. So uh, these organisms. So it, within diphtheria, we've got Carinobacterium diphtheriae, ulcerans, and pseudotuberculosis, which can all um, cause a similar syndrome. Although diphtheriae is the is the main causative organism, hmm. and this is in the collective consciousness of. Uh, the population because of uh, the huge impact it had in society historically prior to the introduction of vaccines. So this is an organism that causes upper respiratory tract infection and the pathognomic 
sign. So the sort of clear differentiating sign is the formation of what's called a pseudomembrane across the back of the frota, which is seen visually as a sort of grey um, mucus mem membrane covering the back of the throat. And prior to the introduction of vaccines, so a vaccine was uh, developed in the 1920s and uh, since then it's come down. But even in the 1930s, it was the third leading cause of death in children in England and Wales. Mm. Um, so you can see it was a huge amount of cases and uh, the case mortality rate was about 20% in children under five. Uh, so really quite a, a scary infection. That's amazing. That that rivals malaria for yeah. uh, for killing children. That's yeah. crazy. And it's not that long ago that we uh, had very high infant mortality rates with diseases which are now not seen because of vaccines. So mm. really fortunate. Unfortunately, this is still present in the world so you know there's estimations on on rates globally there is a reportable disease um so in the rounds of four to five thousand cases reported a year but uh that's very you know it's definitely underestimation because the parts of the world where this persists are often aren't able to collect that data reliably and it can be very infectious with an infectious period of about two to three weeks um without treatment of antibiotics and so can result in uh, larger scare outbreaks. So most recent one being a, the sort of public health crisis with the Rohingya um, uh, group in uh, Myanmar. Uh, That's right. There was a diphtheria outbreak there, wasn't there? Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's all very well in the in the West. If you've got a, essentially 100% vaccinated uh, population, you will very rarely encounter diphtheria, and usually then in migrant populations as well. So it's diphtheria is part of the UK vaccine schedule. Your your kids are all vaccinated. It's definitely is in the DTP, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, acellular pertussis. Yeah, that's right. You know that we don't encounter this a lot, but what what's going on when you do get diphtheria? You get somebody who's got. Uh, diphtheria. So th there is still a range of, of severity. Some people will just get a standard upper respiratory tract infection, but um, but it's worth diving into what's happening pathogenically to kind of illustrate uh, how severe the disease can get. So coronabacterium diphtheria, or ulcerans, or ulcerans for that matter, is not intrinsically able, able to produce the diphtheria toxin. The diphtheria toxin is carried on a bacteriophage called carinophage beta, and that carries the exotoxin gene. So bacteriophages are viruses which are targeted at bacteria uh, alone. They've been evolving alongside bacteria all these years, and there are some symbiotic relationships. The presence of carinophage beta in a carinobacterium diphtheria or ulcerans cell, bacteriophage will inject the exotoxin gene and then the bacteria will be able to then uh, produce it. And that exotoxin is divided into two bits, an A fragment and a B fragment. And there's a lot of AB toxins in the world of, of microbiology, uh, not least in, in cholera, which also has an AB toxin. So usually the A fragment is the active fragment and the B fragment binds the cell. And the reason it does that is usually it's a porin to allow the atoxin to get in. And so the uh, B fragment is the one that sticks onto the top of the cell. It sometimes does other stuff as well, but usually it's just allowing the A fragment to get in to the target cell, which in this case is the upper respiratory tract epithelium. 
and uh, B the B fragment actively transports A toxin into the cell, and what the A fragment does is it reduces uh, protein synthesis in the cell. It stops it in its tracks, actually, and if you can't replicate proteins, you can't survive until the cells die. And then the toxin spreads to other cells and the bugs get this environment in which to live. And this kind of steady uh, increasing piling up of successive layers of epithelial tissue uh, on top of each other produces this characteristic pseudomembrane. And the pseudomembrane, it's, it's like you said, Calm, it looks a bit grayish. It's a bit kind of almost fragile, really. But the, the issue is that that can get so big that it starts to obstruct the upper respiratory tract. Less so in adults, but particularly in children who've got smaller diameters uh, of the upper respiratory tract relative to their size. And that means that they can die of asphyxia. But the toxin doesn't just do that. It goes everywhere uh, in the body. And so it can cause renal impairment. It can cause myocarditis. It can cause neurotoxicity, particularly locally. So usually people describe a paralysis of the eye uh, muscles. Uh, people get double vision and they're not able to move their eyes on command. Uh, but also uh, paralysis of the neck and throat muscles, so like a, a local dissemination of, of toxin into surrounding tissues. It's important to note that when it comes to severity, coronabacterium diphtheriae is usually more severe than, than ulcerans. And then lastly there, you can get some skin infection with diphtheria, and then that usually presents as ulcerating lesions on the limbs, which is, again, toxin-induced cell death. I just have to say that it's brilliant about the active and bind cell A and B. I don't think I knew that. So, Oh, Callum's um, learned something again, everybody. Yeah, yeah, I think that happens every episode, James. <laughs> <laughs> don't need to worry about it. So one of the, the, the cutaneous stuff, sometimes that can be seen in relation to, to um, pets or other animals. Um so a couple of case reports looking at transmission from, say, a dog becomes colonized with a toxin-producing strain and transmits it to owner. Mm. And finally, vaccine is brilliant. It's a, usually a toxoid vaccine, so it's not the active toxin. It's uh, something that's very closely chemically related, and that induces immune response. So it's not a live vaccine, which is good, but the vaccine efficacy can wear off with increasing age and immune senescence, uh, which is basically where your immune system isn't quite as good as you're older. So you can get a, an attenuated version of diphtheria when you, if you're immunocompromised or old, even if you've been vaccinated. And generally speaking, that is less severe. Mm, cool. Yeah. So microbiology, what do you see? You've got this organism in the lab, if you're looking for diphtheria and then you're looking at fruit swab, you'll see on your gram stain a gram-positive bacilli, um, mm. which are, was in the name of the episode, so you could probably guess that bit. And we'll differentiate crani bacteria from other gram-positive bacilli. Uh, generally speaking, they are non-spore-forming in contrast to the bacilli. They're non-motiles. They don't move around. They don't have a capsule. And on the gram stain, they typically overlap, can be in V shapes, they're described as, or can be in palisades. The other thing to note on the gram is that in certain phases of life, they are club shaped. So they've got a bulbous end at one end. And that's what the word bacterium means. So form means club shaped. So that's a little bit of interesting microbiology fact there. Real thing. So you've got your gram stain. You're not going to identify it on that alone. Well, how, how are you growing them? 
how are you growing them? So they'll grow depending on the sample. So say you've got a, a throat swab. When you do a throat swab, you're looking for things like group A strep and other streptococci mainly. So you plate it onto a, a blood agar and it'll grow mm-hmm. in that fine, but it won't look any different on that from any other organism. And there's so many organisms in the upper respiratory tracts that you, you can't find it. If you have reason to suspect that the patient may have diphtheria, say there's a travel history or you're working in an area where it's endemic, then what you'll want to do is use a specific type of agar, which is called Hoyle's. And this agar is selective for diphtheria. So it suppresses the growth of upper respiratory tract flora, gram-positive organisms and so on. Mm. And if you grow, if it grows on there, then it, it displays a, a typical growth pattern and you would suspect it. It's not completely selective, but it, it does help. And you, most of these organisms, most of the cronybacterium are aerobic, so they grow in oxygen, or they can be facultively anaerobic, so they can choose to grow in anaerobic conditions as well. They're not that fuzzy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, if we, once we've got an organism, we think, oh, this might be diphtheria, so we can use a couple of different methods to identify it. So you can do something called API, which is a lot of reactions into a plate for cronybacteria. Uh, but in the UK, we just do this in a Molditoff. So it's not a, it's not a lab pathogen. Uh, if you're specifically worried about diphtheria, you can do a PCR looking for the uh, gene for the toxin production. Another biochemical test you can do, say something's gone wrong or you don't have access to these more advanced techniques, then you can do biochemical tests or uh, diphtheria and other cronybacterium catalase positive, um, just like the streptococci were. Um, and then if you want to differentiate diphtheria from the other cronybacterium, it should be nitrate negative and other cronybacterium should be nitrate positive. Again, with most of these biochemical tests, when you look into it in the textbooks, there's exceptions to these rules. Um, so you can't rely on them completely. Yeah, some, somewhat annoyingly. Uh, yeah. And that's what's good about if you, you know, if you can't use the Molotov, the API Carini is specifically for differentiating diphtheria from other Carini bacteria. And it's a kind of a long plastic strip and there's these little windows in there each window's a, a different biochemical test and you take a sample and you put it in and then you read out the result it's doing all of this stuff kind of behind yep. the scenes to try and get this this answer for you and it gives you a percentage probability as well we'll talk about apis later when we talk about diagnostic methods in the lab yeah in general a bit of an outdated technique generally hmm. but really much simplified instead of having to have 16 tests, 16 reagents, 16 quality controls, you can just do the API and it's all automated in an extent before you start to fill it up. So yeah, but that's the microbiology um, of it. Move on to the treatment. Yeah. How do you kill them? Well, diphtheroids. Yeah. Let's just go back to the diphtheroids quickly. Just say how to kill them. Yep. So generally speaking, you're going to see these on prosthetic infections or peritoneal dialysis. So if it's peritoneal dialysis, the patient's, on dialysis, the kidneys don't work, so you don't have to worry about nephrotoxicity so much. So generally speaking, you treat it with vancomycin, which you can instill directly down the peritoneal dialysis catheter. It's quite an undertaking surgically to place one of these catheters because these are fairly non-pathogenic indolent organisms. You can you, you can try at least to salvage the catheter by giving good antibiotic treatment. Sometimes that will fail and the organism will persist and you end up needing to change the catheter out, but given the undertaking is both surgically and for the patient to have that replaced, you, you try and, and treat it. Other treatment option uh, might be something like daptomycin. Um, sometimes these are sensitive to penicillin, uh, but mm. they can be uh, fairly drug resistant. 
And I think that, again, reflects that these are organisms on the skin and the people that are getting these prosthetic infections are people that are in hospital or exposed to healthcare. And so they're exposed to antibiotics in the environment and their skin flora is exposed to those antibiotics. And so they become more resistant. Um, so if you're somebody who's never had yeah, healthcare probably. contact, your diphtheroids in your skin are probably quite sensitive, actually. And so too diphtheria, actually. So diphtheria is usually sensitive to penicillins or, or macrolides. And the standard course of treatment for that is, is 14 days. With diphtheria, there is also an antitoxin available. It's actually, I, th- I think its availability is, is quite limited now. I think the main source of it in the UK would be PHE Collendale, the public health lab. Uh, that's down in London, and you would have to get some shipped up. So you better confirm that they have diphtheria first, yes. otherwise you won't get it. With the antitoxin, that would be particularly important if you had somebody who had really severe toxigenic, so you had you know myocarditis, limb uh, neurotoxicity, that kind of thing, or if there were difficult airway issues. Although usually now the solution to that would be to take them to ITU and intubate the patient. You know, I've never seen that done no. and never want to. So, But you, the, vac- the to- antitoxin you can access, so the stock's held throughout the country. Um, you need to speak to, uh, is it Collendale? I think it's Collendale that you speak to and the, they approve the use of it. And then you can yeah, they release it up. and then the, the yeah. regional centre will to give it, it to you. Refrigerated. So it's, is it quite tricky logistically? We did have a patient that we were be organized to get antitoxin for but in the end they didn't didn't acquire it they just improved with antibiotics mm. and they never yeah. they didn't actually have a i don't think they had a classical pseudomembrane either so no it's not always the typical presentation i think that was picked up from a exposure history so because it's mm. a biofold disease you you might get them presenting in that way so i think that's as that's covered crony bacteria i think so and that's certainly all that i know about them so Uh, questions comments suggestions um why don't you send them into idiotspodcasting at gmail.com until next time i'm jane i've been callum see you then